Hello and welcome. Today we continue going through the poems of the Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish, who will be reciting A Soldier Dreams of White Lilies, or Jundi Yahlamu Bizanabiq al from his collection The End of Night in 1967. But before I begin, I want to provide some context to this poem so that it can be appreciated on the first hearing. In this poem, Mahmoud Darwish is having a conversation with an Israeli soldier about his part in a war. The dating of the poem in 1967 suggests that it is most likely the Arab-Israeli War of June 1967, known as the Six-Day War. I will explain my reasoning and also expand into what the Six-Day War actually was and how it is so significant for both Palestinians and Israelis. With that said, please bear in mind that a discussion around politics and morality, which is highly charged to this day, is unavoidable, and I will try to remain as neutral as possible. But for now, the poem. He dreams of white lilies, an olive branch, her breasts in evening blossom. He dreams of a bird, he tells me, of lemon flowers. He does not intellectualize about his dream. He understands things as he senses and smells them. Homeland for him, he tells me, is to drink my mother's coffee, to return at nightfall. And the land? I don't know the land, he said. I don't feel it in my flesh and blood, as they say in the poems. Suddenly I saw the land as one sees a grocery store, a street, newspapers. I asked him, but don't you love the land? My love is a picnic, he said, a glass of wine, a love affair. Would you die for the land? No. All my attachment to the land is no more than a story or a fiery speech. They taught me to love it, but I never felt it in my heart. I never knew its roots and branches or the scent of its grass. And what about its love? Did it burn like suns in desire? He looked straight at me and said, I love it with my gun. And by unearthing feasts, in the ancient ruins, and a deaf-mute idol, whose age and meaning are unknown. He told me about the moment of departure, how his mother silently wept when they led him to the front, how her anguished voice gave birth to a new hope in his flesh, that doves might flock through the ministry of war. He drew on his cigarette, he said, as if fleeing from a swamp of blood, I dreamt of white lilies, an olive branch, a bird embracing the dawn on the lemon branch. And what did you see? I saw what I did, a blood-red box thorn. I blasted them in the sand, in their chests, in their bellies. How many did you kill? It's impossible to tell. I only got one medal. Pained, I asked him to tell me about one of the dead. He shifted in his seat, fiddled with a folded newspaper, then said, as if breaking into song, he collapsed like a tent on stones, embracing shattered planets. His high forehead was crowned with blood, his chest was empty of medals. He was not a well-trained fighter, but seemed instead to be a peasant, a worker, or a peddler. Like a tent he collapsed and died, his arms stretched out like dry creek beds. When I searched his pockets for a name, I found two photographs, 
one of his wife, the other of his daughter. Did you feel sad? I asked. Cutting me off, he said, Mahmoud, my friend, sadness is a white bird that does not come near a battlefield. Soldiers commit a sin when they feel sad. I was there like a machine, spitting hellfire and death, turning space into a blackbird. He told me about his first love, and later about distant streets, about reactions to the war in the heroic radio and the press. As he hid a cough in his handkerchief, I asked him, shall we meet again? Yes, but in a city far away. When I filled his fourth glass, I asked jokingly, are you off? What about the homeland? Give me a break, he replied. I dream of white tulips, streets of song, a house of light. I need a kind heart, not a bullet. I need a bright day, not a mad fascist moment of triumph. I need a child to cherish a day of laughter, not a weapon of war. I came to live for rising suns, not to witness their setting. He said goodbye and went looking for white lilies, a bird welcoming the dawn on an olive branch. He understands things only as he senses and smells them. Homeland for him, he said, is to drink my mother's coffee, to return safely at nightfall. Apart from the poem being written in the same year as the Six-Day War of 1967, the soldier makes a comment that is a vital clue. In the second-to-last stanza, he says, I want a bright day, not a mad, fascist moment of triumph. And then Mahmoud Darwish says, حدثني عن حبه الأول فيما بعد عن شوارع بعيدة وعن ردود الفعل بعد الحرب عن بطولة المذياع والجريدة He told me about his first love and later about distant streets about reactions to the war in the heroic radio and the press The moment of triumph and heroism characterizes the six-day war for Israel which cemented its position as a military power in the Middle East in the previous poems I've read, Darwish wrote of the Arab-Israeli War of 1948, which is perceived in the Israeli national narrative as a war of survival, more than one of triumph. I mentioned how the founding of Israel on one hand caused the expulsion of many Palestinians on the other, including Darwish and his family, who returned to a country now called Israel, and in which he was a present absent alien. What remained of Palestine was the west bank of the River Jordan, occupied by Jordanian forces, and the Gaza Strip, bordering the Sinai Peninsula and occupied by Egyptian forces. Nineteen years later, in 1967, Israel would go on the offensive under the claim of preemptive self-defense, facing the militaries of at least three countries. It would occupy the Gaza Strip and the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt, the Golan Heights from Syria, and the West Bank from Jordan although it would retreat from the Sinai Peninsula and then the Gaza Strip in the coming years, it still holds the West Bank and the Syrian Golan, to this day, under military occupation. And there lies the moment of triumph and heroism the soldier is referring to. A young, newly founded country, 
fighting on multiple fronts against multiple enemies, claiming a swift victory and acquiring new territory more than doubling its size in just six days. The Six-Day War has been just as pivotal for Israel and Palestine and their respective peoples as the War of 1948. At the time of the poem's publication, it caused outrage among both Israelis and Palestinians. I suppose this reaction shows how successful it was as a piece of art in actually managing to get a reaction from people. The Israelis said that Darwish was speaking for them without authority, as it seems he was putting words in the soldier's mouth, and that Darwish was suggesting that the only way for Israel to be righteous or peaceful is to not defend itself at all. The Palestinians said that Darwish humanized the Israeli soldier too much, in that the soldier was not just an ordinary person, but also disillusioned with the war and very human in his desires, at one point referring to Darwish as his friend. Whether this is based on a real conversation with a real friend is not clear, though it is not beyond the realm of possibility that Darwish would have had Jewish-Israeli friends in his lifetime. The poem would also go on to inspire a novel titled Sadness is a White Bird by Moriel Rothman Zecher, which I will link below. The title is named after the soldier's lamentation when Darwish asks him if he was sad that he had killed someone, and the front cover bears a white lily flower. The story is about Jonathan, a young Jewish man who returns to Israel after spending some years in Pennsylvania. Now old enough for compulsory service in the Israeli army, he is eager to defend the country that his grandfather helped establish, a Greek Jew whose community was wiped out by the Nazis. However, Jonathan is conflicted over the possibility of going to the occupied Palestinian territories, as he has grown close to two childhood friends who happen to be Palestinians. It is due to this that just four days after his 19th birthday, he finds himself in an Israeli military jail, recalling the events that led him there. The book contains some references to Darwish himself, including one of his most iconic and well-known poems, Identity Card, or Bitaqatu Hawiyya, which I will do an episode on later. There is also mention that the conversation with the soldier in this poem may be based on a real Israeli Jewish friend that Darwish knew by the name of Yossi. With that said, just what was the Six-Day War? I already mentioned that Israel went on the offensive as part of a preemptive defense. In other words, it took action when it perceived that it was about to be attacked. But the question is, why? The root of this war lies yet in another war commonly known as the Suez Crisis in Egypt in 1956. Now, when Israel was founded in 1948, and many Palestinian Arabs were expelled from Palestine, it was faced with hostility from its neighboring Arab nations, mainly Jordan and Syria to the east and Egypt to the south. It should also be mentioned that the Arab nations as a whole expelled thousands of their Jewish inhabitants as a way of retaliation. Now, Egypt has a strategic feature which made it attractive to British imperial interests in the decades before, so much so that Britain effectively ruled it under a protectorate with a sympathetic king on the throne. That feature is the Sinai Peninsula. It is a piece of land that juts southwards into the Red Sea. On one side is the Strait of Tehran, which leads to Israel, and on the other side 
the Suez Canal, which leads into the Mediterranean Sea. This canal is very important for international trade, especially between Europe and Asia, allowing ships to save days from their journey by cutting through, instead of sailing all the way around the African continent. Under the British protectorate, Britain and France shared ownership of this canal. In 1952, a military coup overthrew the king, and Egypt became a republic, led by the charismatic Gamal Abdel Nasser. In 1956, he announced the nationalisation of the Suez Canal and wrested it from British-French control. Israel invaded the Sinai Peninsula, and the British and French stepped in on a so-called humanitarian basis. It was later discovered that all three countries conspired together. Israel would invade giving Britain and France a reason to deploy troops there and to try and regain control of the canal. Despite a bloody war, the British, French and Israelis were forced to withdraw by pressure from the United States and Soviet Union, and the Suez Canal remained nationalised. The first United Nations Emergency Force was established by the UN General Assembly as a peacekeeping mission and to secure an end to the crisis. Now, 11 years later, in 1967, the Egyptian government was given false intelligence by the Soviet Union that Israeli forces were massing on the Syrian border. This was maybe because Israel had been carrying out frequent incursions into the Jordanian-occupied West Bank and Syria in response to Palestinian armed groups who themselves were attacking Israel. The Egyptians having signed a defence pact with the Syrians in the previous year, announced they would cut off Israeli shipping lanes at the Strait of Tehran. They expelled the United Nations Emergency Force from Sharm el-Sheikh, which overlooked the strait, and positioned their own troops there. Israel repeated its warning that it had made before. If the Strait of Tehran is closed to shipping, then it would consider it an act of war, a casus belli. One of Israel's first actions was to launch Operation Focus, or Miftsa Moked, a surprise air attack on Egypt, which was very poorly prepared in its defences. With this one attack, Egypt's air capability was destroyed, and Israel established air supremacy for the duration of the war. Although the Egyptian planes were mostly stored in hangars, they were not reinforced against aerial bombardment. In the space of three hours, Egypt's entire fleet of nearly 500 aircraft were destroyed. The Israeli Air Force then began to strafe the runways, making them unusable. At first, both countries announced they had been attacked by the other, but then Israel altered its explanation to one of preemptive self-defense. The Syrians and Jordanians, who were also poorly prepared, could not match Israel's air force, and so the Israeli air force was able to focus on assisting the ground troops very effectively on all fronts. They took a gamble in attacking the Syrian Golan Heights, which was a highly defensible position, as well as the West Bank with the River Jordan. This is an example of how establishing air supremacy and being prepared is the key to victory in conventional warfare. To this day, Historians debate as to whether Israel truly was defending itself or whether truly the Arab states were getting ready to attack Israel at all, or whether the story of escalations was a justification to launch surprise attacks and force Egypt to reopen the shipping lanes in Tehran. In international law, there is a debate as to whether there is such a thing as a preemptive self-defense that can justify a Yusad Belem, or a justification to go to war. The Israeli political scientist Zev Maoz wrote of this war 
it is most important to reiterate the conclusion of most scholarly accounts of the crisis. This was a process of unwanted escalation, which everybody wanted to prevent, but all were responsible for making this escalation unavoidable. This wording makes me think of the explanation given for the First World War when studying history at school, a case of wrong place, wrong time, and no one completely at fault. Finding out the truth of it would be an endeavour all its own. But I do not want to dwell on the intricacies and details of the war, as I am sure I could research and talk for hours about troop movements, motivations and so on. What I want to focus on is the poem. I want to return to the description the Israeli soldier gives the war, a mad, fascist moment of triumph. The key word here is fascist, a political term with a negative connotation, and it's quite an accusation, usually used to describe governance that is authoritarian or totalitarian in nature. The Cambridge Dictionary defines it as a political system based on a very powerful leader, state control and being extremely proud of country and race and in which political opposition is not allowed. The Merriam-Webster dictionary offers two definitions. The more elaborate one is a political philosophy, movement or regime such as that of the fascisti that exalts nation and often race above the individual and that stands for a centralized autocratic government headed by a dictatorial leader severe economic and social regimentation, and forcible suppression of opposition. The second definition is uh, a lot more general and simple. It is a tendency toward or actual exercise of strong autocratic or dictatorial control. The soldier's description of the war as a mad fascist moment of triumph is therefore a very controversial statement by Darwish, since we must remember that the soldier is effectively a mouthpiece for the poet. Now, I'm very aware of the arguments made by pro-Palestinians and pro-Israelis about this conflict as a whole, as surely practiced as musical instruments, be they right or wrong. One of the pro-Israeli arguments that relates is the notion that Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East, for surely, if Israel is a democracy, then it cannot be fascist by definition, it cannot be authoritarian, and its very system of government does not allow autocratic control. Indeed, Israel is a parliamentary democracy, with elections, different political parties, and an independent judiciary. Even the Palestinians who remained in Israel proper after 1948, now called Israeli Arabs, have a right to vote in elections, but it is not as simple as it seems. I remember attending a lecture in the city of Oxford, given by Avi Schleim, a British-Israeli historian, some years ago. He was discussing his book called The Iron Wall, Israel and the Arab World, which I will link below. During the lecture, Schleim described the Six-Day War of 1967 as the moment that Israel started to morally decline as it imposed a military occupation on the West Bank and the Golan Heights as well as a settlement program which endures to this day. There are many Israelis and Israeli organizations who are critical of the Israeli occupation and the fact that the Palestinians living under it are at its mercy without any vote or say. Draconian laws such as administrative detention which allows for the indefinite detention of a person without charge or trial, the encroaching settlements, which is a war crime, and checkpoints impeding freedom of movements. All of these are features which have persisted, regardless of election results in Israel proper, 
and it is these aspects of the military occupation and this moral decline that is the tendency towards exercising autocratic control as defined in the Merriam-Webster that we looked at earlier. The poem and the criticisms of people like Avishlaim have given me pause to reflect on this idea. How does the occupation and settlement program cause a so-called moral decline? At the most basic level, there is the narrative. If a society is going to do something, it must first create a narrative to justify its actions to itself. Part of this is the preemptive self-defense argument, which was the reason for the Six-Day War in the first place. But even to this day, the holding of the West Bank under occupation is justified under security concerns. Looking at a map of Israel, one can understand why. The west bank of the river Jordan is a grouping of hills and highland that bulges out of Jordan into Israel, overlooking lower, flatter territory. It is higher ground. Although Israel and Jordan have a stable relationship for the time being, one never knows what the future holds. Being a monarchy, Jordan is at risk of instability with each passing monarch, and was, for a moment, facing Arab Spring-style protests in 2011 and 2012. If Jordan was to have some change of personality, as we say, and decide to try and attack the West Bank and occupy it, it could nearly split Israel in two, north and south, and spell disaster. Then there are more realist concerns. Beneath the hills of the West Bank lie water aquifers and resources. The Golan Heights in Syria is exactly the same. Prior to Israel taking it, Syrian forces were able to use the high ground to fire at Israeli territory and being a point of high elevation, the snow and rainfall acts as a source for the river Jordan and is estimated to be 15% of Israel's water supply. But unlike Jordan, Syria is still officially hostile to Israel and is facing a lot of instability as a result of a protracted civil war since 2011. But there is another narrative that runs parallel to this a more ominous one that justifies the building of civilian settlements on the occupied territories, which, as I mentioned before, is considered a war crime. And that is an ethno-religious one, by which I mean a justification based on ethnic and religious heritage. In the spring of 2020, Israel announced that it intended to formally annex the occupied Palestinian territories, I was aware at the time that this annexation was being justified because of the presence of Israeli settlements and that the subject of annexation was being discussed for a long time before that. These settlements are seen as an irreversible reality, though not all historians agree on this matter. In other words, there were too many people living there and there was too much built that they became so-called facts on the ground. I did some research into the settlement program at the time, namely its origins, and came to an interesting discovery. In his book, For the Land and Lord, Jewish Fundamentalism in Israel, which I will also link below, political scientist Ian Lustig gives a good overview of the thinking behind these settlements. An underground Jewish organization called Gush Emunim, meaning Block of the Faithful, set out the ideology of settling occupied land which influences the various settler movements to this day. At its core is a belief that this occupied land is the rightful heritage of the Jewish people due to it being the historical location of the Jewish kingdoms of Judea and Samaria. The Israeli government officially calls the occupied Palestinian territory as 
Judea and Samaria in its communications, and as such, the act of settling it, regardless of what the international community says, is an act of faith and duty. In fact, international opposition to settlements is further proof of Israel's righteousness and status as a chosen people of God over others. In other words, it is a blatant form of exceptionalism. Today there are movements such as the so-called Hilltop Youth who establish outposts that are deemed illegal by the Israeli courts themselves and seize Palestinian cultivated land by force, seeking to expel all Palestinians from occupied Palestine through the use of violence and threats. Many of these illegal outposts have been enabled by the Israeli government, who sought to retroactively recognize them by passing the regularization law as it's commonly referred to. This has run alongside raids on Palestinian villages, one of the worst of which was the 2015 Duma arson attack, in which a Palestinian family, including an 18-month-old infant, were killed. The Israeli government treated this as a terrorist and racially motivated attack after making arrests. There are organizations, such as Lihava, who seek to enforce segregation between Jews and Arabs, calling for Jews not to enter into relationships with Arabs, and for Jews who rent properties to Arabs to be named and shamed. In 2016, the Anti-Defamation League, which is an organization that actually tries to defend um, Jews as an ethnic group and which looks out for instances of anti-Semitism, urged the Israeli government to stop being complacent about Lehava's activities, as their views have quote-unquote direct implications to Israeli society and the Jewish people. Now this might give you the impression that this ethno-religious zealotry is on the fringe of Israeli society, but it is fast becoming mainstream. In the 2015 Israeli elections, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu posted a video warning Israeli Jews that Israeli Arabs are voting in droves, and that left-wing parties were bussing them out. This stoking of ethnic tensions might be shocking to some, but it represents an internal struggle that Israel is facing between its Jewish character and its democratic character. In 2018, the Israeli parliament passed the contentious Jewish nation-state bill into its basic laws, which affirmed that the right of self-determination within Israel is reserved for Jews alone, excluding Arabs and any other minorities such as the Druze. Israel's basic laws effectively act as overarching constitutional laws. This is why it has been met with protest and dismay, especially for the Druze, who continue to serve in the Israeli military to this day. The basic law also says that the state quote-unquote, views the development of Jewish settlement as a national value and will act to encourage and promote its establishment and consolidation. As said settlements continue to expand, there are warnings that the country is heading towards a binational state, where a government can use this basic law to settle land exclusively for Jews at the cost of other groups, despite there being other basic laws which provide for equality among all people. The ethno-religious heritage argument, which bases its logic on the location of ancient kingdoms, may have been hinted at by Darwish in the poem, when he asks the Israeli soldier about the love between himself and the land, and the soldier responds, وَسِيلَةِ لِلْحُبُّ بُنْدُقِيَّةِ وَعَوْدَةُ الْأَعْيَادِ مِنْ خَرَائِبْ قَدِيمَةِ وَصَمْتُ تِمْثَالٌ قَدِيمٌ I love it with my gun. 
and by unearthing feasts in the ancient ruins, and a deaf-mute idol whose age and meaning are unknown. The unearthing of feasts and idols might hint at Israel's archaeological activities. I have closely followed the Israeli media in the past, and have noticed that archaeological finds that hint at a Jewish connection to the land, be it in Israel proper or in the occupied territories, are widely reported and celebrated in the press. These archaeologists may very well just be going about their day, doing their job of unearthing the history of the land, but their finds are often a reassurance. Yes, the settlement program is a war crime by today's standards. Yes, the land and homes of ordinary people are being expropriated and their freedoms restricted. But their ancestors came here 1,400 years ago, supposedly. They are not the true natives. On the other end of the spectrum, you have challenges to this argument, such as Shlomo Sand, an Israeli historian who wrote a very controversial book titled The Invention of the Jewish People. He challenges what he views as myths about the origins of the Jewish people today and concludes that many Palestinian Arabs are, ironically, the descendants of the ancient Hebrews. Ultimately, to a non-religious Jew like Sand, all peoples are an invention in some way or another, a social construct. Now I point all of this out not to call Israel categorically evil, and it's not just to explain how Darwish's use of the word fascist has become more and more relevant over time, although it definitely plays a part. But it is to highlight this internal struggle that Israel faces between its Jewish character and democratic character. It is a worry that is expressed by some Israeli Jews themselves. We have already mentioned Avishlaim, but there are also those in Israel who consider themselves on the left wing of politics and journalists such as Gideon Levy, who frequently comments on the injustices of the occupation in the Israeli newspaper Haaretz. Nor is Palestinian society unaffected or free of blame. In a similar thread, because of its struggles against the occupation, Palestinian society has flirted with various ideologies such as nationalism, Soviet communism, and most recently Islamism in various forms, in an effort to find a place for itself within the modern world. One of the biggest parties, Hamas, has been criticized by Darwish himself for what he sees as its extremist views and practices. It is also a fact that civilians, including children, have been targeted and killed, especially with regards to suicide bombings. The poem and the lamentations of the soldier within it, who in the end is just an ordinary man, like you or I, is a powerful warning. The elation of victory, the pride of a powerful military, the heroism, it is all intoxicating. If absolute power corrupts absolutely, then a society which exerts power and enables its populace to do so onto another group of people can be corrupted thoroughly. It then follows that the pursuit of justice in such situations is not just about saving the occupied, but the occupier as well. I hope that you've taken something away today just as I have. Thank you.